Welcome to On Mic with me, Jordan Rich, a chance to meet some very creative people from the various arts, music, literature, acting, directing. And today, I once again focus a bit on voiceover with a man the Boston Globe has referred to as having the perfect broadcast voice. You'll know in a few minutes when you hear him that the Globe was right on in their assessment. His name is Dana Hersey, heard on commercials, promos, movie trailers, and more nationwide. He's a longtime radio and TV veteran with a sound that is truly memorable. All right, let's hear that voice first of all. Dana, say a few syllables. Hi, Jordan. How are you? <laughs> I'm grand. It's so nice to have you on the podcast. And my first question is, where does Dana Hersey hail from? I don't know that answer. Well, uh, the truth is uh, I was born and raised in uh, Wedham, Massachusetts. I mean, more specifically, born at Beverly Hospital. But I uh, have been on the North Shore most of my life. I've worked in other parts of the country, but I kept coming home. That's great. I didn't know that. I thought you were some Midwestern cowboy or something. I had yeah, no well, knowledge of that. <laughs> well, let's talk about the work you do as a voiceover artist, first of all, because this podcast was born to investigate and to, to talk about the thrill of voiceover. And you've been the voice of so many radio and TV stations and products and services over the years. How did this all start for you? You know, that's a very odd question. Well, it's a, it's a common question, but it's, a, it's an odd answer, I guess. I went to military school. And uh, that in itself is a story. But and I was going to Hamilton Winter Regional High School uh, when they had first built it. And it was thought that I wasn't exactly meeting my potential, at least my father did. So anyway, I ended up at uh, Valley Forge Military Academy in Wayne, Pennsylvania. And I was probably around 13, I guess, 13 years old, yeah, somewhere around there. And my voice had changed fairly early. And everybody that goes as a cadet to Valley Forge Military Academy has to audition for the choir. It's mandatory. So, and the choir's a big thing there. So at this time, there are 2,000 boys there, 2,000 cadets. So I remember sitting, <laughs> to this day, I chuckled every time I think about it. I remember sitting, waiting with plebes. It was my plebe year, of course, that you audition. And I remember sitting with my fellow plebes. It must have been two or 300 of us in this auditorium. And we were in, outside another room and inside the auditorium this man called Major Whiteside was auditioning people. He was sitting at a piano and having people sing America the Beautiful. Well, I want to tell you something. I'd, inside that auditorium, hearing those boys sing America the Beautiful, we were laughing. Mm. I still I think about it today, how funny it was. But anyway, they, it was my turn. It came my turn. I came in, sat down at the piano, and uh, he started building it out, and I started to sing America the Beautiful. Now... I know it's such a great singing voice, but at least it was a baritone. It was a bass voice, and it was something they couldn't find a lot of at the time. Anyway, I ended up in the choir, and uh, that was great because then you didn't have to march on Sunday morning. A lot of marching going on, but there was always a Sunday morning parade to go to chapel. And I think there might have been a parade after chapel, but you didn't have to do that if you were in the choir. You had to get to choir. So as a result of that, it was a good thing. And you had uh, Coke and donuts. You can have uh, Coca-Cola <laughs> donuts. That was a big deal uh, at Valley Forge Military Academy. Instead of just going to the mess hall and having whatever they were serving, that uh, you could go to the chapel if you were in the choir, and they'd give you Coke and donuts every Sunday morning. Anyway, when they used to do these military tattoos all the time, they called them, and they needed a cadet to be the host of these military, military uh, tattoos. And even before they did that, Oh, and, you know, I skipped a, a segment here. Before they did that, they were doing a Christmas pageant 
on WFIL in Philadelphia. Now, they wanted a cadet to read the nativity. Mm. So they went to the choir, to the baritones and the basses in the choir, to have them audition for this nativity. And everything was mandatory then. You didn't like step forward. They just said, you are going to audition for this. Well, they picked me. So I ended up on WFIL, first time I was ever on television, at the age of 13, maybe 14 uh, at that time. Um, it was all black and white. Yeah. And we did the nativities, and I narrated the whole thing. Well, the next day, we used to have a place called the Boodle Shop. And the Boodle Shop is where you got your mail, get your boot polish. Uh, if you were lucky enough, you get a couple of candy bars. And nobody ever got any mail, or certainly I didn't. Every once in a while, my parents might send me a postcard or something. But uh, I walked out of the Boodle Shop about a week, I guess, after I had been on television. And the, uh, the sergeant in the Boodle Shop said, hey, Hersey, get your mail out of your mailbox. And I looked at the mailbox, and it was stuffed with letters from people. And I opened these letters. There were wonderful letters from people saying what a great job you did on the, uh, on the nativity, the narrative, what a great future you have. Now, you know, understand, for a 14-year-old kid, who really didn't know what he was going to do, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, I had some vague idea that I wanted to be a lawyer at one point, but uh, I was just at 14 years old. That's pretty much a fantasy. You don't know what you're going to do. But it seemed to be, hey, this would be a pretty easy way to make a living if I could keep this going, right? And so that's how it really started. And then from there, then they had me uh, narrating all of these military tattoos that they had dignitaries that came. It was quite a big deal, that place. And so every time a dignitary came or whatever, they would have a military tattoo, and uh, they would have me narrate the military tattoo at the same time. So that's really how it it began and how we decided, you know, I'm going to go to school for this. Interesting. And what about training for your voice, which is so stentorian and so mellifluous, and also breathing? I mean, did you did you actually learn breath control in the choir by any chance? No. You know something? I can't really say that. Thank you, by the way, for your nice comments. But I, I can't really say that I did. I did have trouble, I remember, early on, uh, and this was pointed out to me when I worked for Armed Forces Radio. I was drafted uh, during the Vietnam War, and I ended up in Korea. And they're working for AFKN in Korea. And I remember there were two words that everybody used to poke fun at me for when I was doing news over there, or I used to fill in for the uh, jocks as well. And it was America and Cuba. I used to put an R in the end, <laughs> which is a strong region. And you know what's funny about that? I didn't, I didn't hear it. It was really weird. I couldn't. Everybody was laughing about you know, how, you know, how funny that was. And it took me a while, actually, to change that because it sounded okay in my own head. It was weird. You probably had but, uh, good ideas, too, about how to I change that. I had ideas. So, yeah. yeah, but, you know, around here we put R's in the end of uh, uh, words all the time. We've been made fun of, those of us from Boston and New England, for years, and rightfully so because, you say, there's so many ins and outs with the accent. But your career has taken you across the country as a voiceover artist, but also as a television star locally. And I wanted to talk to you about, uh, and this will be something that many people will remember fondly, your work at TV38 for many, many years. Were you originally just the staff announcer at TV38? That's true, I was. Um, but for uh, quite a while, they were looking for a way to, every once in a while, I used to film it for Tom Larson. The only on-air personality when I joined the station was Tom Larson, and he had a talk show. And he also did the Bruins wrap-up, I think for the Bruins station then as well. Yes. He did the Bruins wrap-up, and then later on he did the Red Sox wrap-up. And I used to fill in for him, but I was hired 
I was working for WLYN in Lynn uh, doing the morning show there. That's the station that became the FNX, the Phoenix station. And I was working for the AM side of that because FM at that time was just foreign language. So um, they, somebody said to me when I was working there, hey, you should go over to, as a news director at the LYN, he said, 38 is looking for an announcer. So that was a union job, Jordan. So, as you know, it's a big uh, boost in pay. Big step up from WLYN, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah big yeah. boost in pay. So, and I was going to uh, school at the time. So I was going to Emerson, Emerson at the time. So I went over and I got the job. And it worked out that I got to graduate and then get into that job full time. But from that time, at that moment, I think we had four booth announcers. And you would sit, literally, it was all live. Nothing was on tape. And you also kept the log going. So you would see the programming go by. When you had to log the commercial breaks and make sure that the commercials had run by checking them off. And, and you signed the log at the end of the day. And then about every 10 or 15 minutes, you would have to say, available at Zares. <laughs> or, you know, or this is WSBK TV, you know, or you'd have to do an ID or something, but you literally sat there. Well, it, I wasn't going to stay there and do that much longer because I was really bored at it, despite the fact that you get paid really well. And so they were trying to find a way for something that I could do there. And eventually that worked out, too. I said, well, what about a hosted moving program? Uh, that was at the time, great entertainment was on the air. If you remember, right. uh, which had been preceded by a show called dialing for dollars, mm -hmm. which was a channel seven show. Ed Miller. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Ed Miller. I remember yeah. dialing for dollars. And, uh, so I think he was one of the pioneers, although I think that format was all over the country. But, um, I thought that, uh, the, the great entertainment did a great job, but I wanted to do something different. I didn't want to wear a tuxedo. And I wanted to be casual about the whole thing and have some fun with the show. And so that's how it was. It, worked yeah, out it was the movie loft, right? The movie loft, is that what you're referring to? It was the movie loft. You know, i got to tell you a funny story, Dana. Having And this, this is, again, a little inside baseball, but having worked at WBZ Radio for many, many years, still do, uh, your, your spiral staircase remained in the back studio because 38 and BZTV kind of moved in together. That's right. And every time I would take a guest around for a late night tour, I'd say, hey, you see that? That's the movie loft uh, staircase. And they'd get all excited. You had a, you had a great run with that. Oh, and, and I have to ask, were, were you a movie aficionado before that or because of that? I was uh, always a giant movie fan. I really was. I don't know about aficionado. I don't really know that I'm that now, but I've always been a very... A uh, wildly passionate fan about movies. I like bad movies as well as good movies, you know, uh, horror movies, all kinds of movies. I, uh, I really grew up loving movies. I remember when my parents uh, got the first color television that the, because years ago we only had one TV, but when that black and white TV was retired from the living room, I brought it into my room. Uh. And I used to stay up at the, and watch the late show, the yeah. late, late show. And, and you'd see all these Cary Grant and Gregory Pack and Claudette Colbert and Anne Sheridan and uh, Fred Astaire and all these wonderful, wonderful movies, the Warner Brothers movies and Paramount movies. And that's really where I developed an incredible passion for film. And to uh, that to that end, you've done movie trailers, and uh, that's a, a unique group of individuals, mostly men, who do that kind of thing because you really – you, get, you have to have the pipes for that. Tell me uh, you, any experiences with movie trailers that you remember. Well, you, the way that started, uh, I know I've done a thousand junkets, as you know. I've done interviews with hundreds of movie stars, 
as a colleague of mine once said, hundreds of stars we've interviewed, but only a few actors. That's uh, maybe a, something of an exaggeration, <laughs> but it's probably true. Um, but I was doing, I was in in Los Angeles, and they used to kid me about it. And you know, walking in, especially if there was somebody like uh, who had a deep voice, an actor that had a deep voice, oh, here comes somebody that was going to challenge your voice or whatever. And one guy, I interviewed a director one day, and he said, do you do movie trailers? And I said, uh, no, I don't, but uh, I'd like to give it a try. And so that's how it all started. So then I started to do movie trailers uh, at the same time. And they're a very lucrative business. But uh, people don't make as much money as they used to in, in a movie trailers anymore. Right, right, so, right. It seems yeah. to be the trend in our industry that, uh, like a lot of other industries, it's downsized a bit and people are uh, – Looking for a, a deal, as they say, but still, it takes uh, somebody of your caliber to be the voice of, say, a radio or TV station. And you've been doing this. I, I've driven across country and heard you in other markets, uh, which is kind of fun when you think, "Hey, uh, right now I'm sitting back and relaxing, talking to Jordan Rich, and uh, being heard in Cleveland or <laughs> wherever." That's a that's a fun way to work too, isn't it? It, it is. It's a great way to work, and you know, there's a good and, the, and a bad thing about. I mean, it's become less expensive to find yourself an announcer now. I mean, when I first started doing voiceover work, I had two ISDN lines in my house. Now, very few of us know what. I'm sure you know what those are, um, but you had to have those ISDN lines to deliver your uh, the quality necessary uh, for a broadcast. But now, of course, everybody's on MP3s or MP4s. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's completely unnecessary now. What that has done has increased the number of people doing it, but nevertheless made it a heck of a lot easier to do it. Oh, the web has and, changed uh, everything, hasn't it, Dana? But yeah. you still need the, the talent and the microphone and the script. You still need those three elements and uh, to put it across. And, and one of the things, too, that I, I know you do a little bit of, I'm not sure how much of it, but you've done some stage acting and some commercials on TV and so forth and so on. Is that more of a kick or less of a kick than being behind a mic? I, uh, I love acting and I want to, you know, I don't have a lot of regrets and why would I, you know, I mean, uh, it's been great to me. This business has been tremendous to me, but had I uh, do it all over again, had I, uh, the time to do it all over again or the opportunity, I would have spent perhaps a couple of more years doing the acting thing. I mean, we started the Copley Square Players here. I mean, I, I worked with a wonderful group. Yeah, it's a great basis for whatever you do, of course, um, acting. But I just, I love theater. I always did. And uh, still do. One of the things, before I let you go, that is remarkable about you, and people remark about this, when you were in Boston on TV 38, was your sense of humor. And I want to just bring you back to a show called Ask the Manager, which was probably the, the most inexpensive show to produce and one of the more popular shows on local television describe that for people who don't know what we're talking about well as the manager was actually it was designed first of all because when you hold an fcc license you are required to do some kind of you know public programming some kind of programming that you don't do necessarily for money and so uh it was determined at 38 at one point that we weren't quite doing enough of that and, uh, you know, coming up for review for our license, uh, we were going to get on the stick and do some shows that are just uh, for the public. So this show was designed not only for the public, but to respond directly to the public uh, in what we were doing in our programming. So you could literally, I sat with a gentleman, I was in the early days, in fact, uh, representing the viewer 
my back was literally to the camera. So the general manager would, would be, be facing me, and I would read the letters to him, and then he would then uh, respond to what the letters were. But what we found over the years, and it, it developed quite a strong uh, following, and uh, people used to love watching that show, but the letters sometimes were hard to take seriously. There were people who would call and complain about the fact that there were not enough curlies in the Three Stooges, <laughs> yes. as that they, they didn't like the chefs and yeah, they didn't like yeah, the curlies. Yeah. And then some of them were scrawled in crayon, some of these. And so, you know, most people that wrote in were wonderful. I mean, they really were. And we had uh, some people that became dedicated to it. There was an Ask the Manager page, I think, a web page. Uh, that a fan of Ask the Manager actually started. Wow. Well, I was a fan. I was a big fan because it was so funny, the interaction between you and various general managers. I think there were two, right? At least two guys? Well, there were, were... three, actually. Oh. And then the third one decided that uh, I was spending an awful lot of time out in Hollywood or in New York doing these interviews and other places as well, doing celebrity interviews, because um, I worked for a, a show called Preview as well as the one I was working, which is a national program. Uh, started by Almasini, the man who started Entertainment Tonight. And so I did that for a while, and then I was working for American Movie Classics as well, and also also providing a, a show called uh, Hersey's Hollywood for uh, our market as well. So um, I was pretty busy out all over the place, and that was the kind of show that uh, you know, whenever they wanted to tape it, I mean, the general manager wanted to tape a show, then you had to tape it. So you had to have somebody yeah. there that was there all the time and ready to go. Uh, the original guy that I did that show with um, was the first general manager that we had. Um, used to like to go to lunch, you know, and he used to have a couple after he went to lunch. <laughs> and when he came back from that, that was another thing that was just pretty funny, that he'd be slurring his words sometimes as I was, you know, asking him these questions. So the whole thing was really uh, oh, really man. bizarre. But, it was great yeah, stuff. A lot of people did like it, yeah. I'll have to close with this question since you mentioned interviewing stars, uh, and you've interviewed hundreds of them, and so have I, but it, was there ever one that you were totally starstruck and couldn't believe your your great luck to be in front of? Well, I, I'll tell you what. I mean, there were a lot of people that I really enjoyed interviewing, some not so much as, the, as others, but um, it was a great job in that you got to meet a lot of people that you only knew on film or on television, but certainly Gregory Peck. The oh. day that I interviewed Gregory Peck uh, was a very special day for me. And you know, it was one of those, Jordan, one of those interviews, and I know you interview a lot of people as well, one of those interviews that went perfectly. You know how the, the whole continuity of mm. everything from every question came together, and Peck was such a pro that all of his, his answers were anecdotal. So we all, every, on every movie that he, you know, I talked about, he had a story about every movie. And it was just perfect, just absolutely perfect until the end of it. Until the end of it, I looked at him and I said, Gregory, Gregory Peck, it's been a pleasure meeting me. And he looked at me. <laughs> they, used to, they used to use this on the Christmas shows, you know, when they put together these Christmas parties. They used right. to put a reel together. And, it was on. and he looked at me and he says, well, well yes, it was. 
<laughs> I, and I knew you did a great Gregory Peck. I could, I could just hear it as you were telling the story. I, I Obviously, there's a lot of fun in, in this Dana Hersey character, and I know you have great mimic uh, skills, and I could just hear Gregory Peck coming to life. That's a wonderful story. Listen, you've spent a lot of time with me. I really appreciate it. And for those who want to find out how to reach you or contact you for a gig, I know you're on Voice 123, but is that the best way to reach you or what? Uh, actually, you can, uh, I have uh, com. Oh, that's even better. Dana Hersey yeah. voiceover. It's actually Dana voiceover at gmail.com. It would be better to get a hold of me there. Dana voiceover but, uh, at gmail. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. uh, we hear you on the air locally in Boston and people are hearing you all over the country. It's great to have you on the podcast. You're a true gentleman of this art form, and I appreciate it very much. George, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. This is Jordan thanking you for listening to On Mike with Jordan Rich, available on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and, of course, Android. Appreciate you subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing this podcast if you get a chance. On Mike is produced at Chark Productions in Boston. Until next time, be well so you can do good.